Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 141st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And we're going to New Zealand on this episode. I believe this is our first location in New Zealand. I think so as well. I really wish that we could have gone and like researched it in person. No kidding. This is definitely something we've added to our bucket list. This was suggested to us by our listener, Aaron Olivia, and that location is... Waitomo Caves Hotel. This is an exciting episode for us because we have a little bit of a connection when it comes to the Maori people, which we're going to have to talk about in order to talk about these caves. We're going to be going down some rabbit holes on this show because you can't talk about the Waitomo Caves Hotel without talking about the actual Waitomo Caves. And officially, they're called the Waitomo Glowworm Caves. So we're going to be talking about glowworms. We're going to talk about these caves, the Maori people, the haka. We're going to get into a lot of stuff and I think we're going to have fun sharing it with everybody. It's going to be a great time. Now, when you're talking about glowworms, are you talking about that little thing that kids used to take to bed that they advertise and it would sing songs and light up? As a matter of fact, you can still get one made by Play School. Perfect. All right. I believe it plays little nursery rhymes or something. The reason why this kind of hits home for us or a little soft spot in our hearts is we were in Hawaii almost 20 years ago. And we were there for an international instructor seminar for Taekwondo. And one of the people who was there was Senior Master Birch. And he had brought a group of his students from Australia with him. For those who don't know him, some of our listeners are um, part of our Taekwondo circles. But Senior Master Birch was an instructor and the head of the Taekwondo organization in Australia. But he himself was born Maori. So he is from the Maori tribe and had amazing stories to tell and was just one of the best storytellers I've ever heard. And so we were at this luau and we were sitting across from him and just listening to him regale us with these tales. So it was the first time I'd ever heard of the Maori people. And so it was just fascinating to listen to him tell the stories. So we're going to bring some of those stories to you on this episode. I did want to just take a moment to honor Senior Master Birch, he is no longer with us. We lost him just over, barely just over a year ago. And so he definitely left his mark on this world in the Taekwondo family as well as throughout the the world. Just He just was a great, great guy. And so I guess in some ways we could actually dedicate this show to the late Senior Master Birch. Sounds good to me. Before we get into doing that, we want you guys to check out our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. 
Also want to let you guys know it's 15% off of everything at the History Ghost Bump Emporium. This is through to August 11th, 2016. You just need to put in coupon code KEAT16, all in uppercase. Or when you're on the actual Emporium, it's up in the top right corner. It says like 15% off of everything. If you click the arrow there, it'll have a little drop down. You can just add it right then to your order. We want to thank Megan, Richard, and Katie for your suggestions. And as you guys heard, there's a little bit of a different bumper for Society 13. It is the podcast network that we're a part of, and we are really excited. It's been growing by leaps and bounds, and we've added our friends from Just a Story and Audio Dime Museum have joined us in Society 13. So welcome to them. And speaking of Society 13, we have a fellow podcast over there called The Abracast. It is hosted by John Towers. It's brand new. Some of you may have listened to John Towers' previous podcast, which was Red Horse Radio. He asked Denise and I to be on there for an interview, and we did so. And we will share the link in the show notes of today's episode. If you guys would like to tune in and hear both of us talk about the podcast and some of our ghostly experiences that we've had and other good stuff. We did get a comment over on the website from McKenna. Hi, guys. Just wanted to say how much I love your show. I'm studying to be a mortician. So it's nice to have people who are just as interested in bizarre things like me. Please don't stop anytime soon or ever. Thank you very much, McKenna. And so now we have a yin and yang with a feminine and masculine energy going on. That's right. We have a mortician and an embalmer now. We've got it. We've got it taken care of. Yes. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Gwen. Hey, Gwen. Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Avery. Hey, Avery. Roxanne. Hey, Roxanne. Julie. Hi, Julie. And Denise, who spells her name quite differently than you. And hello, Denise, who spells your name quite differently than me. (laughs) It's D-E-N-E-I-C-E. Pretty cool. All right. Are you ready to go to New Zealand? I most certainly am. Let's do it. History Goes Bump is entirely listener supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to this moment in oddity. This moment in oddity is brought to us by Bob Sherfield. George Wyman crossed the Sierra Nevada following a route from San Francisco to Reno in 1902, and during that journey he decided to do something amazing. He had made this current journey so that he could race on his motorbike at a county fair. The motorcycle he rode and hoped to race had only one and a quarter horsepower. During the ride, Wyman realized that no one had ever traveled across the USA in or on a motorized vehicle, and he decided to be the first to achieve it. Wyman departed San Francisco on May 16, 1903, leaving from Lada's Fountain on the corner of Market and Kearney at 2.30 p.m. He had promised the Motorcycle Magazine, a periodical of the time, that he would document and publish an account of his journey. 
He rode a California motorbike that was, for all intents and purposes, simply a bicycle frame with an engine motor attached to it. It was capable of 25 miles per hour and could cover 75 to 100 miles on a tank. Wyman carried with him surprisingly little in the way of equipment. He took warm clothing, money, a water bottle, oil and gas cans, a camera, cyclometer, a small set of tools and spare parts, and a long-barreled revolver. Fifty days later, on July 6, he rolled into New York City. His motorcycle was so broken by the time he reached Albany that he had been forced to pedal the last 150 miles using a path reserved for licensed cyclists. He had completed his journey, and he was the first person to undertake and complete a transcontinental crossing on a motor vehicle. It had taken him 51 days to cover the 3,800 miles. Then, just 20 days after he arrived, Horatio Nelson Jackson completed the same journey in a car. Jackson's cross-country trip had taken longer than Wyman's. He had two companions with him, one human and one canine. And the journey took 63 days from the West Coast to the East Coast. To the American people, it didn't matter that Horatio's journey took longer. He had captured their imagination because he had done it in a car. For this reason, most people do not know that Wyman was the first man to cross America on a motorized vehicle. That such a pioneer could almost be forgotten because he accomplished the feat on a motorbike certainly is odd. in history. This Day in History is by Kristen Swintek. On this day, August 7th in 1794, U.S. President George Washington invokes the Militia Acts of 1792 to suppress the Whiskey Rebellion. In hopes to reduce the national debt which was incurred during the American Revolutionary War, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton imposed the first tax on a domestic product, distilled spirits. Whiskey was the most popular distilled drink in the 18th century, and this tax became known as the Whiskey Tax. This tax was resisted by farmers who distilled their grain and corn into whiskey and used it to barter. Many of the resistors were also war veterans who believed in the principles they originally fought for, no taxation without local representation. Throughout western Pennsylvania, federal officials who attempted to collect this tax were met with violence and intimidation. In July of 1794, 500 armed men attacked the home of Tax Inspector General John Neville. In response, Washington sent peace commissioners to negotiate with rebels and called on governors to send militia forces. With 13,000 militiamen, George Washington rode at the head of the army to suppress the insurgency. The rebels left before the army's arrival, and there was no confrontation. The Whiskey Rebellion showed that the new U.S. government had the will and ability to repress violent resistance to its laws. The Whiskey Tax was repealed when Thomas Jefferson came to power in 1801. to History Goes Bump. 
Waitomo is a beautiful natural location on the North Island of New Zealand that is known for its lush bush area and sea caves. The original people of this land, the Maori, have developed a culture rich in legend. A main draw for the people from around the world are the Waitomo glowworm caves. The caves are not only known for their natural beauty, but for the creature for whom they are named, the glowworm. A popular tourist destination needs lodging for its visitors, and that is where the Waitomo Caves Hotel comes in to fill the need. The hotel has existed for over a hundred years. Situating a hotel in a land rich with lore, limestone, and strife has led to rumors of this hotel being haunted. Join us as we share the history, lore, and hauntings of the Waitomo Caves and their hotel. Waitomo is a Maori word that means stream which flows into the hole in the ground. The name makes sense when considering that beneath Waitomo winds a series of caverns formed millions of years ago. Limestone bluffs shoot up above the ground, dotting the landscape. The Maori have been here since 1350. They claim to have come from the mythical Polynesian land of Hawaii. In reality, they came by canoe from eastern Polynesian islands. They settled on the shores of what would become New Zealand, and they hunted seal and moas, which are a type of bird now extinct. And I think we talked about them in one of our moments in oddity, actually. They spread out and lived in small tribal groups. The Europeans arrived in the 1800s, and initially it was mainly missionaries. They converted many of the Maori to Christianity. There was peace until the British tried to establish rule and set laws. In 1840, the Treaty of Waitangi established British law and government, but the Maori revolted and the Maori King Movement, or Kingitanga, was formed. This would be the first time that the Maori had a king, and the first king was Potatu Te Werowero. A dynasty was started with his coronation in 1858. This caused war, particularly in the 1860s. This war was known as the Waikato War. The Maori sought to defend their authority and lands. Eventually, the Maori lost much of their land. The Kingitanga continues today, and it is important to understand that this was not something formed against the British crown as much as it was formed for the Maori. A fun fact here is that the Maori perform traditional dances called hakas, and the most well-known, particularly to myself and Diane, is the kamate haka, and that dance dates back to the early 1800s. We are going to play a portion of the audio for the kamate haka. I was going to try to get Denise to sing it, but she wouldn't go for it. No, because this particular haka, from my understanding, is supposed to be done by men, not women. And that's probably because some of the meaning behind the words <laughs> has to do with uh, the female flower. So here you go.
just love that, Denise. And what's so incredible about that is anytime we've been around the Australians or the New Zealanders, the guys generally would get up and do this for us. And it's very dramatic and sticking out the tongues as far as you can get them. And it's, it's a lot of fun to watch. Those of you who are into soccer have probably seen, I believe the team is called the All Blacks. That's the New Zealand soccer team. They do this quite often. Yeah, and it, it is funny because when we were at camp last month, I told the Australians that were there, the Australian team, I said, I miss you guys doing the haka. And they're like, well, ma'am, that's not an Australian chant. And I said, well, I know, but I said, for me, I will always associate it to the Bayrui Australian Taekwondo team because of their instructor that we already mentioned, the late senior master Birch, because since he was Maori, a lot of his students knew the haka and would teach our guys the haka when they came, when they were sharing different cultural things. So even though it's not Australian, I always associate it to Australia, I guess. The Maori consider the caves of Waitomo to be tapu or sacred. They believe the caves are inhabited by Taniwa, guardian beings that live in rivers, in the sea, and dark caves, and Patu Parehi, whom are pale-skinned spirit beings that, according to Maori folklore, live in deep forests and mountaintops in New Zealand and are thought to use ethereal flute music and singing to lure people to their doom. I was about to say I would love to hear the flute music, but I will take a pass on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this reminds me of the sirens of Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Same kind of thought there. It is thought that the caves have been used as a burial ground for the Maori as well, so that's why we might have a few issues when it comes to the cave and hauntings and things. The caves are believed to have formed some 30 million years ago, fossils and other deposits gathered on the seafloor forming sedimentary rock. Volcanoes erupted and the shifting caused earthquakes, and through this process huge slabs of limestone were lifted out of the sea. And Diane, I have to giggle just a little bit because now you're starting to sound just a little bit like James Michener at the beginning of his book, Hawaii. <laughs> just saying. Well, that's how all these islands got formed, isn't it? <laughs> it most certainly is. The rocks had cracks into which water flowed, creating caverns that are the caves we see today. Inside the caves, visitors can see limestone crystal deposits, stalactites, and stalagmites. Exploration of the caves by Europeans began in 1877 when government surveyor Fred Mace floated on a raft into the caves. That would be scary and very cool at the same time. Yeah, caves are always kind of touchy because you don't know where they end and are they going to get really narrow so that you can barely squeeze through. And the thing that amazes me about people who, they're called spelunkers, right? I love that word but that go and explore caves, sometimes when they can barely squeeze through, they go anyway. I'm like, are you nuts? Or you don't know if water's <laughs> going to come or you're going to drown. Yeah, No, I'm like a big, big opening I'll go into. But like if I can barely fit through, my cave exploration is done. I agree. The caves are home to the glowworm. The caves are perfect for the glowworms because they are sheltered in a damp area where a river brings plenty of insects for food. These glowworms are the larvae of a species of gnat called the Arachnocampa luminosa. This gnat is unique to New Zealand and resembles a maggot, growing to the size of a matchstick. They glow because their tails are bioluminescent. Oxygen in the air reacts with a chemical that they secrete, and the result is a glowing light that appears to be bluish in color. They trap their food in a similar way to spiders by spinning a thread and then using their light to attract the bugs who become caught in the threads. I had no idea that glowworms spun threads 
to catch their food like a spider. But that must be why their technical name starts with arachno. Oh, that's very true. And the funny thing is, we'd mentioned it earlier, but I had no idea that that play school toy glowworms were actually based on something real until we did the research for this. I learned a lot with this. That's why I'm just having so much fun with this one. Thank you so much for suggesting it, Aaron. The Waitomo Caves were first discovered by the Maori, and it would be local Maori Tane Tanaru and his wife that would build a hostel near the caves for lodging. They picked a spot where a British fort had formerly been located. They completed construction in 1904 and called it Waitomo House. New Zealand had established the Department of Tourism and Publicity in 1901, and the goal of the government department was to buy up these national treasures. In 1905, the department bought both the caves and the hostel, and a paper at the time claimed that a W. Rattan was running it when it was purchased. And I'm not sure where this W. Rattan comes in, because this was from a paper, that name, and there was only about a year here between the hostel being built, so I'm not exactly sure where he comes into the picture. The hostel needed updating, so wood was brought in via horse-drawn carts, and utilities were equipped in special ways since the location was too remote to be hooked up to town supplies. Running water was pumped in from the Watoma stream, and electricity, which was a luxury at this time, was generated by a dynamo powered by a petrol-driven motor engine. This was completed in 1908, and now the lodgings were called the Government Hostel at Watomo. The architectural style is Victorian, and it has similar features to the mountain chalets of Europe and was designed by architect John Campbell. Guests were moved about by coach, which was great in the summer, but during the winter, the muddy pass forced the hotel to have to pull the coach through the quagmire. The original structure still stands and is called the Victorian Wing today. When looking at the hotel, it is clear that there are two distinct buildings. The original hotel was proving to be too small to manage all the tourism. It only had six bedrooms, so. Many times visitors would have to share rooms with total strangers. (laughs) That would be awkward. Yeah, I don't think so. It's bad enough if you have to share, like, a bathroom down the hall. What do you do? (laughs) Flip a coin for the bed? (laughs) Here's your suite mate. (laughs) And you're like, hello? Hope it's a king-size bed. (laughs) And when there were too many people for that arrangement to work, tents were set up outside, so... I don't know. I think I would probably rather stay in a tent outside than with a total stranger. But then again, this is New Zealand, which is probably more jungle-like than even down here in Florida. And I have enough trouble with snakes here. So, A new addition was completed in 1928, and it is known as the Art Deco Wing today. It features concrete pillars and was built in the Cape Dutch style found in South Africa and designed by architect John Thomas Mayer. This style has roots in medieval Holland and Germany, and most buildings built with this influence have a large, distinctive front gable. The outside is clay with lime mortar, and then the entire surface is whitewashed. It reminds us of old missions. So if you look at the picture that we have included with the audio today, you'll see that it has that kind of the the one side. It it is a very unique building because you got the Victorian on the one side and old mission on the other. This addition added 24 rooms to the six in the Victorian wing. A large kitchen and dining room were added at this time as well. In 1990, the government decided to sell the business, and the hotel has transferred ownership multiple times. Well, Leslie Hotels and Resorts own the property today, and they have been conducting an extensive renovation of the property, which was in desperate need of that according to reviews all over the Internet. They've added a spa and relaxation area, most public areas have been refurbished, including the reception and dining area. 
There are now 33 rooms, and each has their own private bath. And another fun fact with this hotel is you can see the Southern Cross from the hotel. This constellation was immortalized by the Crosby, Stills, and Nash song, Southern Cross. And I'm sure you're all familiar with the line, when you see the Southern Cross for the first time, you understand why you came this way. When you see the Southern Cross for the first time, I'm not going to sing it. A land steeped in legend that has experienced strife can sometimes spawn stories of hauntings of both the nefarious and sublime. The Waitomo Cave area and the hotel are reputedly quite haunted. While the hotel would have you believe that the only thing guests will experience is peace and tranquility, the possibility of cold spots, bathtubs dripping blood, and encounters with dubious shadow people is quite a possibility. Staff may be unwilling to detail their experiences, but enough of them and enough guests have encountered supernatural occurrences to put this hotel on the paranormal map. Room 14 is one of the haunted locations at the hotel, and its story was inspired by a Maori legend. This tale dates back to the war between the Maori and the British. One of the daughters of the Maori king had fallen in love with a British soldier. They would meet in secret, and it was while she traveled to the British fort for one of these rendezvous that she was killed after being mistaken for a warrior. Her spirit has been at unrest ever since and haunts the former fort's area. A young male guest was staying in room 14, and he suddenly felt the icy chill of a spirit he believed to be this Maori princess. He told several guests later that day of his experience, and he was quite shaken. Later that evening, he ended up committing suicide. Some say it was by hanging, and others claim it was by slitting his wrist. Stories that the bathtub in room 14 is seen dripping with blood back up the slitting of the wrist theory. The young man's apparition is seen both in room 14 and outside wandering the hallway. So one has to wonder, did he decide to commit suicide because he was already depressed and that was kind of his point in being here? Or was there something about that interaction with the spirit of that supposedly Maori princess passing through him? Did it do something to him? I don't know. The Maori princess not only is reputed to have visited this room 14, but she's been witness walking around the Victorian wing of the hotel, which features the honeymoon suite. She also seems to like the attic and people claim to hear her moaning in there. She frequents room 12 as well, which is next door to room 14. Lights move about the room and guests complain that their bed sheets are pulled off and something unseen tickles their feet. If it's just tickling my feet, I think I'm okay with that. But I thought bed sheets were supposed to be shields, so how is she pulling those off? I don't know. A lot of the ghosts come at the bedtime, so I don't know how they're ever shields. <laughs> Another room with activity is room 12A. That actually is room 13. A lot of people might say, how do you go from room 12 to 12A to 14? Superstition, of course, as most people know, prevents hotels from labeling floor 13 on the elevator. Same thing with the hotel rooms. They don't want a number at 13, so it became 12A. Talcum powder spilt on the floor by investigators reveals footprints later on, and optics within the room are moved about. A little boy spirit named Daniel is heard giggling in the halls, and his spirit is seen skipping sometimes. Little children complain about a child that is picking on them that parents cannot see. It is believed that Daniel was the son of a maid at the hotel in the 1930s. The hotel had a small cluster of rooms that catered to the staff, and a hallway that connected these rooms to the kitchen and restaurant was dubbed Cat Alley. Daniel was skipping through Cat Alley and popped into the kitchen where he hit a pot of boiling water that came crashing down on him, scalding him horribly. He eventually died of those injuries. This cat alley is where Daniel is most often seen. 
These hauntings all seem rather tame, but there is a malevolent spirit here, usually found in room 25. The staff dislike entering the room and claim that they feel sick, and the energy in the room feels oppressive. Disembodied screams are heard, and objects are moved and sometimes thrown. No one is sure who haunts this room, but it has been surmised that a former head staff member that has taken ownership of the building is to blame. They seem to want to keep order in the Art Deco wing. Several paranormal groups and TV shows have investigated the hotel. The Haunted Auckland and Strange Occurrences teams are a couple of them. One of the members of the teams reported this weird experience in room 14. Quote, I heard sounds of wind being disturbed as if a bird with very soft wings was flying around the room. End quote. The same individual felt strange in room 25 and said, quote, At a spot in the middle of the room and at the foot of the leftmost bed, I felt a massive sinking sensation, like when you go over a bump in the road that leaves your heart in your mouth. It felt very different in there to other parts of the hotel. This was my first feeling of dread in the place. Until then, we had felt embraced. This felt uncomfortable, more in that room than in the bathroom, and definitely more in that area of the room, end quote. Another investigator named Barbara was staying in room 12A. She'd been wearing a cross, and she took it off and put it on the nightstand before going to bed. The next morning, she found it broken and took a picture of the cross, and I saw the picture Obviously, we don't know. She could have broken it herself, but one of the crossbars is broken off. That's not something that would just happen on its own, really. So No. A woman named Christine claimed to catch an EVP at the hotel during a stay in 2006. My hubby had just asked me if I wanted a glass of wine. I said yes. He handed it to me, and I said thank you, and continued to tape the room. When I took a breath, there was a very audible sigh and arg. Neither of us heard a thing at the time, and it is not my husband's voice. Kind of a weird thing for a ghost to say. Arg. Maybe it was a pirate. <laughs> Maybe. Arg. Joanne on TripAdvisor in 2012 said, I could not sleep as every noise played havoc with my mind, creeping floorboards all night long, footsteps coming from the room above, and then around 1.30 a.m. I heard a strange moaning, crying coming from the room above. I woke my partner up so scared and he said to go to sleep. It must be a dog. But I knew there were not dogs here at the hotel. And the noise was definitely coming from the room above. When we returned from our holiday, we examined the photographs. And this one in particular caught our eye. The photograph was taken in daylight by a digital Nikon SLR camera. No flash was used. There appears to be an orange glowing ball in front of us. And above our room where we stayed, there appears to be a strange green light top center a little to the left. The Watamo Cave seemed to have attracted more than just the tourists. Do spirits reside here in the afterlife? Is the Waitomo Caves Hotel haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, I don't know if it is, but this location is on our bucket list. Oh, yes, it is, because there's not only this, but many, many things I want to see in New Zealand. Yeah, we got to go see Hobbiton, Yeah, we got to go see these. Yes. Our next location has been suggested by a couple of our listeners, Sloss Furnaces. I'm looking forward to this one. It's a very different location than anything we've done before. It was suggested by Lisa Atkinson and Megan Parks. We have a couple of reviews to share from iTunes. And I love this user's name, Denise. Five stars from Goofy's Gal. Uh-oh. Competition. I have something special here for you, Goofy's Gal. Gorge. It's a little button I have on my desk that has Goofy. All you got to do is push it. Gorge. <laughs> anyway, Goofy's gal says, a must-listen-to podcast. 
This has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts over the last few months, and I splend of fun, informative segments covering interesting oddities, dates in history, and neat feature segments covering historical places with hopefully found paranormal activity. It's even better with the host, Diane and Denise, who have a great report with each other and make their listeners feel like friends. You guys are our friends. Bigger kudos to them being Disney fans. Yay. In regards to the haunted Disneyland episode, the Widow's Walk is found on the Dream Suite located above the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in New Orleans Square. The Dream Suite was originally intended to be an apartment for Walt to entertain VIPs, but was never used after Walt's passing. It remained closed for several years before becoming the Disney Gallery from 1987 to 2007. In 2007, the Disney Gallery was then moved to Main Street. The apartment above Pirates of the Caribbean is now the Disneyland Dream Suite, and I want to stay there. Yeah, I'm wondering if that's like our Cinderella suite, the suite in the castle at Walt Disney World, where it's like only a giveaway. You can't actually book it. And then we've gotten another review from Australia. This is from Max Indy. Five stars. Brilliant. Excellent podcast. Currently working my way through the whole catalog of History Goes Bump. Makes the workday disappear in a fun blur. Great hosts. Interesting topics. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Max Indy. We appreciate that. We appreciate all of you guys tuning in for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Amanda Griffith and Mally Frias. Thanks. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.